I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. This is the sixth episode in a special series produced in collaboration with the Midiar Network called Beyond Trade-Offs, investing across the returns continuum. Now, the moment you say that something's possible from an affordable standpoint and it's a real need of the end customer, then scale, which is the third dimension, is almost our commercial imperative and our impact imperative, and that's the Beyond Trade-Off dimension. That's Sandeep Farias, Managing Director of Elevar Equity. Sandeep spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about the role that early stage finance plays in developing markets. Let's jump right into their conversation. Hello, I'm here with Sandeep Farias, the founder and managing director of Elevar Equity. Hi, Sandeep. Hi, nice to meet you. It's great to meet you and it's great to be here with you in person. I'm sorry I'm not with you in person in Bangalore, where you're based. Well, you can always make a trip. It's a very long flight, but well worth it at the end of it. I look forward to it. I'll take and I'll take you up on that. I'm asking everybody at the start of these interviews, what is beyond trade-offs? Okay, I think for us, it's very simply a matter of access, providing access to essential services to effectively millions of people. And I think you can really do that only if you can bring the amount of capital that is necessary. And so for us, it's really about no trade-offs on the impact as well as the commercial returns as consequence and a very, very focused strategy to deliver access to essential services for millions. Terrific. I want to dig into that very deeply, but first let's just let people get introduced to you. So you are a founder of Elevar, but just tell us a little bit about your own background. Okay, so I grew up all over India because I have three parents, father, mother, and State Bank of India, which was the largest nationalized bank. Uh, My father was a rural banker, so he had many postings all over the country, and I grew up in that context. I eventually did law, um, and then practiced commercial law, corporate law, mostly M&A and capital markets, cross-border in nature, uh, lots of very interesting clients. Uh, and then got both stiff uh, and decided that I needed to move beyond limitation of liability and governing law clauses in documents. Uh, and when I was thinking about doing something outside of law, well, I decided to think about doing something much more meaningful. Uh, and that was the entry into microfinance a long time back uh, in the 2004 time period. So I've been in the space now for 15 years, if you can believe it. So you had your impact moment um, and was there a, was there a, a impetus for that? Was there a, was there a, well, a spark? When, yeah, I mean, when I, when, I, when I thought about stepping out of law, I think the first instinct was to go entrepreneurial. And I was thinking about going entrepreneurial within the education ecosystem. But I had a client who was a little nonprofit, which subsequently was very well known, which is Unitas. And uh, the conversation started out there. And I eventually decided to move into the microfinance space. I was particularly excited with the notion in microfinance, which was a complete failure eventually, that you could build that distribution and then take a lot more through that ecosystem, so to speak, because you had built that distribution, so other products and services. But I think that never played out uh, so well. Some poor thinking at that point of time led to a very interesting career within the impact ecosystem, and I've loved every moment of it since. So Unitas was a seminal player early on in both the impact space and also particularly in the micro. That's right. I, I, I think the notion was uh, accelerating the growth uh, of microfinance institutions. And I think much of Elevar's story subsequently when we set it up uh, was driven by the idea that you can go in early. Uh, you can really identify what a customer need is. So we spend a lot of time on the ground 
you know, some estimates say that up to 15% of leadership time actually goes into conversations on the ground, understanding the needs and aspirations of uh, the end customer. And I think what we're really looking for, where is their wallet, what is their priorities of expenditure? They're typically getting some kind of an essential service uh, from an informal player, either at poor quality or, to, or at very expensive rates. And then we really start to say, okay, if that's the need, uh, then is a business model capable of doing it and delivering that product or service affordably. So that's the second dimension of what we call the Elevar method. And from my standpoint, where I say impact investing is different from mainstream investing or traditional investing is you have to build business models around affordability as opposed to the maximization of margins. So we really ask ourselves that question at that point is can this be done affordably as far as that end customer is concerned, who's an individual or a micro enterprise in, in the low income communities. So you, you mentioned the Elevar method. This is something you guys have yeah, we like, hammered we, out over time. Yes, it's taken a while and it's taken right, give a us the, give us the Give us the cliff notes to the Elevar method. So five dimensions to it. So I've mentioned the customer dimension, which is needs, aspirations, their priorities. The second dimension is the business model, which I talked about also, which is linked to affordability. Now, the moment you say that something's possible from an affordable standpoint and it's a real need of the end customer, then scale, which is the third dimension, is almost our commercial imperative and our impact imperative. And that's the beyond trade-off dimension. Because if you're focused on the affordability of margins, you need massive scale to be able to generate the commercial returns that our investors want. So that leads us to a very interesting question where I think we were perhaps one of the first to move into. We said we have to back entrepreneurs who know how to scale these businesses. So they're typically entrepreneurs who have been there, done that, typically 10, 15, 20 years of experience within commercial backgrounds. Um, so they've either worked for a regional bank or a global bank, or they worked at Procter & Gamble. And really saying they've built teams, they've built organizations, they've done it in a different context, but now decide that their legacy will be to build an organization within the impact ecosystem. So four dimensions, customer, business model, entrepreneur, and scale. The fifth is really about how we engage. And you know, one of the things which I think is critical about the Elvard method is every entrepreneur is different, and the way you have to add value to an entrepreneur is different because they have, they have their own strengths, their own areas of growth, and so you need to almost be a little bit of a chameleon and adjust and curate what you do for an entrepreneur uh, so that they can optimize their possibility for success. So a simple example would be maybe one entrepreneur does not have debt, uh, does, does not have the you know, uh, debt ecosystem, so needs introductions. Another entrepreneur knows everybody in the debt ecosystem. So we'll make the introductions on the debt side for the first, and we won't for the second because that is his area or her area of strength. So that's the Elevar method. It's very consistent. It's very method methodical. And I think we just learned the hard way that we need to be very disciplined about it. Elevar has been outspoken over time as a, quote, market rate investor, that you are not doing concessionary investments, you're not, it's not some kind of quasi-philanthropy, you are going for full commercial returns, yet you are focused on a low-income mass market segment. That's right. So one, we were the team which came from commercial backgrounds. I think all our backgrounds are very commercial in nature, but from a value system and a DNA standpoint, we wanted to do something interesting and meaningful. So we entered the impact ecosystem from that personal journey standpoint, and that was very, very important. But once we got in, we said that within the microcosm of everything that is possible within the impact ecosystem, uh, so David, if you think about it and you think about commercial returns on the x-axis and you think about, let's say, impact returns, if you will, on the y-axis, we decided that we'll play in the quadrant where you can be potentially high on both. So if you really focus uh, on the customer and we really believe in customer-centric businesses, then if you do well commercially, you're also creating a lot of impact because scale is your imperative and vice versa. 
I think a lot of peers, and I think those strategies are very, very relevant and important within the ecosystem, may actually say, listen, if there's a trade-off between the two, I want to optimize towards the impact ecosystem side, or I want to optimize towards the financial return stand. And I think that's completely needed in the space. Hopefully nobody's de-optimizing or not optimizing on both, and so therefore the fourth quadrant is not that relevant. Uh, but what it has meant is, I think, again, where maybe we're a little different is our pipeline is while we get maybe 1,000 companies a year or 500 companies a year, whatever that number is on a particular year, that come through and say they want an investment from us. Realistically, after we've checked the box, are they truly customer-centric? Is the business model really premised on affordability? Is the entrepreneur somebody who's been there, done that, has that commercial track record, and are they really ambitious about scale? Now, once we check that box, we're realistically actually saying we've got 50 uh, opportunities a year that we're really, really looking at, and then we're picking two or three investments out of that. So our pipeline dynamics are a little different. It's not like a lot more is not coming to us, uh, but it's really about this construct. So Elevar itself, you're on your fourth fund, I believe. That's right. And uh, they've gotten larger over time, and you make investments at sort of what stage and what ticket size? Sure. So our first fund was $24 million, which was a pure microfinance fund, India, Latin America, our second fund was 70 million, again, India, Latin America, uh, microfinance, not what we were calling financial adjacency, so other financial products, similar customer segment, and then we said we'll do a little bit outside of financial services. Our third fund was just north of 70 million, so it was kind of about 73 and a half million. Uh, and our fourth fund will be about 125. That's where we're going to end off. The, the, the approach is very, very simple. We believe in going in early. We, we are an early stage investor. We're typically the first institutional check uh, in any company. So there may be an angel round before that, or maybe not. We're very comfortable with even startups. And the reason why we do that is very, very important from an impact standpoint and a scale standpoint. We don't like business models which try pivots. I think pivots are extremely hard. And so we want the DNA of the company to be focused on the end customer within the low income community. And so that means you have to build your distribution to that customer uh, from day one optimizing for success on that standpoint. But if you have multiple customers with different kinds of distribution strategies and where the margins are all over the place, you will naturally gravitate towards a different kind of customer because it's potentially easier. So we believe in that DNA and that's why we go in early. Just to be clear on that, you're saying if you have a dual customer strategy and some of them are higher income, the natural inclination is to serve those higher income customers. Because the margins are better. So eventually that's, you know, that is the natural instinct of everybody because you're building a business. So how and do you keep a business focused on a lower income segment? Sure. So part of our underwriting when we're looking at a deal, we're looking for natural barriers. There could be competition. So let's take a financial product, right? So let's say a loan is being offered and we're looking at a particular company offering X type of loan. If they start to offer it to higher income customers, is there a market barrier? So are there multiple other players, larger banks or institutions already offering that product and it lands up in a very competitive zone where differentiation, uniqueness, all of those dynamics start to actually hurt them because of that overall ecosystem. So we look for natural barriers of that kind in every investment that we're making. So once we convince that an entrepreneur really is committed to the low income community dimension, and then is saying, can I deliver the product or service in a very disciplined manner, establishing the distribution economics, which is typically what we say the first 12 to 18 months of every investment after we've made it. We want an entrepreneur to really focus on building a replicable unit that is breaking even from an operating standpoint. And once you've identified that replicable unit and you can do it consistently, then focus on building the organization, which will be the second phase of how we look at companies. 
By building the organization, we mean risk management, senior management, governance, technology, all of those kinds of things. Typically, you've raised a Series B at that point of time. In some cases, we've led that Series B, which is rare, but very often we brought on another investor. And if you get that right, again, within about 12 to 18 months, maybe 24 months, and the third phase is hypergrowth and scale, because you've really been, so you have a replicable unit, you have the organization for scale, and so you just go for it. So to your question about the capital, in the first phase, typically it takes two to three to four million dollars. And what I think is amazing, that's all it takes to prove a business model in the impact ecosystem. This is not like I'm going to take 10, 20 million dollars. Two million bucks, you can get a business model that's capable of dramatic scale from an impact standpoint and from a return standpoint. The second phase typically takes five to 10 million dollars. And the third phase is really a function of your market opportunity and how you want to go for it. Just give us a couple examples of, of businesses that followed that trajectory and that you've sort of nurtured along the path. Sure. So um, in financial services, you know, we've got uh, two or three companies where, you know, whether in the payments ecosystem or whether in the affordable housing finance space or in the micro and small enterprise financing, small business financing, if you will. So maybe they're branch-led. So let's just take that as an example. So what we will say is, if they come to us, we'll say, okay, in the first 18 months, the distribution economics phase, let's just do five branches. Let's not do 50 branches. Maybe you've done this in the past and you know how to do it, but the dynamics of focusing on low-income communities are different from high-income. So let's do five branches or 10 branches, really be disciplined, get your economics right, figure out who you like to recruit, what are the branch costs like, uh, what is your pricing as far as the loan is concerned, and you really think all of, through all of these dynamics. And if in that span of 12 to 18 months you can demonstrate that those branches can actually break even and make a little bit of money, then you know you have a unit which is workable, is potentially business ready and ready for scale. The additional question you should have answered, is it replicable? Now, flip it, let's look at an education investment. So if you're going into, we have an investment which goes into existing affordable schools and kind of takes over the, the running of that school. Uh, so they may have a cluster which actually focuses on a whole bunch of schools. So can that cluster within an 18-month period, let's say focusing on 10 or 20 schools, whatever is the size of that cluster, can it achieve that operating break-even? And then the, can that cluster, therefore that unit of that cluster, is it replicable? So we will answer that question in the first 18 months. In the second, we're saying, okay, fine, now let's expand the number of units, uh, yet not very, very big, but now build the organization for a large number of units. So in the second phase, you really think about that. It's honestly the harder phase. I think because we're focused on essential services and the products and services are known to the end customer, we actually don't lose companies in the first phase, which is almost counterintuitive because that's the early stage of investing. That's so where you think the higher risk is. That's right. But I, if you've got the entrepreneur right and you do have your pulse on the ground, in our view, is actually less risky. And we've not really lost companies at that phase. Where it gets challenging is in the second phase. Uh, you could have recruited a CEO for the organization at that point of time. He turns out to be, or she turns out to be the wrong person. And as a consequence, you need to replace it. So what should have taken 18 months, maximum 24 months, suddenly is looking like 36 months because you have to replace the CEO. Your technology implementation didn't work out. You need to think about something different. That is the hard phase. And frankly, that's where we faced more challenges. Uh, but if you get that phase right, then, then it's beautiful because you're creating tremendous impact on the ground and then the returns also kick in because there is massive scale at that point of time because you're dealing with markets and because it's emerging markets, you're dealing with markets which, you know, even if you have 20 companies doing the same thing as our one company is doing it, you're still probably talking about, you know, very small penetration levels on an overall standpoint given the enormity of the challenge 
uh, that we're facing from an access standpoint to those essential services as far as low-income communities are concerned. So at some point, you're saying when you've, when you've got the model and you've got the team and you, you're ready to scale, then you do need to bring in much bigger sums of capital. And you have a partnership with the RISE Fund. Sure. Is that where they come in at, when you're at that scaling stage? Sure. So let me give you the background to that, and then I'll explain to it. So one of the things that has been you know, where we've been very proud of the results that we've created is if you take the amount of equity capital that's gone into our companies, which is approximately about 120 million through our multiple funds at the early stage. So I'm just, you know, our deployment of capital. Uh, if you take the amount of co-investor money that's come into these companies, it's north of a billion dollars. So you've put in how much? And Let's say about we've put in 120 million into these companies and almost 10 times that amount of co-investor capital has come into these companies. Now, of course, there's, there's obviously some companies have got more than others and you know that dynamic plays out. But the fact that about a billion dollars has come into our ecosystem really demonstrates the amount of impact as well as the amount of performance on the ground that has actually resulted. And the interesting thing is, again, I think we're one of the rare managers where if you break down that billion dollars, uh, about 75% of it has come from commercial sources, uh, or at least stated to be commercial, and 25% has come from impact sources. And we've been able to, in most of our successful companies, actually attract both impact investors and commercial investors to come onto the cap table at different rounds. And I think one of the things is with the emergence of the large uh, impact funds like the Rise Fund, we saw a strategic opportunity to stay and remain focused on our strategy because somebody needed to create more of these companies so that that kind of capital can move. And the partnership with TPG is they saw a lot of value in that billion dollars where they said, here's a potential opportunity. But I think the other thing is they said, you know, there's a lot of value perhaps in the method that we were following in terms of investing. And so it's essentially a co-investment uh, partnership, if you will where today every time we deploy, let's say, $3 uh, into a new company, they invest a million. So it's kind of that three is to one ratio. Uh, but it gives them visibility up front to potentially write significantly larger checks over a period of time. For us, it gives us the optionality of that capital as these companies start to scale. But ultimately, these are decisions taken by boards and by the entrepreneurs to figure out what is the best source of capital over time. So if they do want to move a lot of capital, they will have to focus on having that independent conversation. But from our standpoint, just having large pools of capital like the Rice Fund and potentially others is tremendously valuable because we do believe that that's an important factor for success if we really want to solve the problems at scale. There's no point saying we want to solve a problem for 10,000 people. We have to address millions. Uh, and can we do it fast enough? Or in case of India, hundreds of millions. True. That's right. Okay. So you, it, let's just take it as a given that you've proven out that there are these models that are addressed to basic needs of low-income people that can scale to large companies that become very good investments for any kind of commercial investor. Yeah. And therefore, you are able to attract investors into your funds that are commercial investors that themselves don't want trade-offs right. uh, for, the, right. for, for whatever their own right. investment criteria are. Right. But when it comes down to it, aren't there cases where there are trade-offs? Sure. So let, let me, um, as far as our own LP base and our investor base is concerned, I think we've been incredibly lucky that we've had really aligned LPs who've bought into, uh, if you will, the uniqueness of our approach and the consistency and the discipline of our approach. Uh, and so really supportive, uh, long-term thinkers. Uh, and, and I think that's an important thing for the space to be thinking about overall because a lot of co conversations 
come down to, okay, what is the GP or the fund going to do and all the questions and the challenges associated with impact investing coming out there. But I think the starting point of the conversation is really who are your LPs uh, and what are your LPs thinking about when they're writing a check to you? So the alignment factor that we really have to think about, uh, if you think about it bottom up, if you do the right thing by the customer, then the entrepreneur will do well. If you do the right thing by the entrepreneur, then the fund will do well. If you do the right thing by the fund, then the LPs will do well. I mean, and I think that uh, virtuous cycle is very, very important. From a top-down perspective, it flows exactly the opposite. So from our standpoint, we've just been incredibly lucky. But we have LPs with very different expectations. I mean, we have LPs who believe that business itself is development and uh, hold us to that standard. And we have LPs who have completely diligenced us primarily on an impact uh, thesis and love the impact that we've created on the ground and therefore have come in on that basis. So I think from the LP standpoint, so long as they're aligned with our investing approach, the LVAR method, if you will, what their individual considerations are and how they underwrite an investment into us may actually vary. Uh, but I think we are in a fairly unique position where we're able to attract a mix kind of LPs. One thing you'll particularly find interesting, four funds, uh, you know, it's not out of any specific strategy of late, uh, but we've actually raised all of this money from private sources. So we don't have large pools of subsidized capital or DFI money, et cetera. I mean, I think we're fairly unique in the, the impact ecosystem. I think this will change over time, but at least so far, uh, if you take all the four funds, uh, you know, it's a lot of LPs who have a development orientation uh, and an impact orientation, but ultimately have seen the uniqueness of our approach and have come in on that basis. What are the, some of the lessons that you've learned? What are some of the setbacks or, or obstacles you faced? Um, I, I think, number one, the importance of governance and customer-centric governance. I think, uh, so let me give you one example. And uh, our first fund was $24 million, which was a pure microfinance fund. Um, and we made uh, our first two investments were uh, SKS and Ujivan. And so this is SKS Microfinance. That's right, and Ujivan also. So one was a rural microfinance player, the other was an urban microfinance player. Uh, we did take a call that we would also make an investment in Ujivan from our second fund, while SKS was just primarily from the first fund. I think we were too small a fund, and as the company scaled very dramatically, you know, we lost our board seat and the whole bunch of implications, and I think we could have been a voice as far as the customer is concerned in the broader ecosystem. So I think we, we, we realized that we needed larger funds, and so our second fund was largely about that 70, 75 million, because that's a very, very important consideration, because you need strong, diverse voices bringing different perspectives of different stakeholders to the table through the journey of companies. So I think that's been one very important learning. The second is, you know, I, I explained the three phases of companies, which is the distribution economics, the institutional platform, and then just the, the growth and scale, the three dynamics. Uh, honestly, the articulation of that came from our biggest mistake. Uh, we made uh, our largest investment at the point of entry uh, into a growth stage investment, which was a CDC investment, and it blew up in our faces 24 months later. This was from our second fund. And when we went back and looked at the analysis, uh, what we realized was 80% uh, of the units were contributing 20% of the revenue and 20% of the units were contributing 80% of the revenue. So when the growth capital came in and we started to scale, well, you scaled the good and the bad and there wasn't sufficient good for the company to do well. So you went back and kind of rethought it and said, where did we go wrong? And the answer came down to say, we really need to focus on getting the distribution economics right and play to strengths. Uh, so that was a hard lesson and it happened early in our journey and in some respects, while it's not ideal for that particular fund, as a fund manager, I think, you know, 
you learn from your mistakes and hopefully learn quickly. And we haven't lost a company at the early stage because of that, I think. So beyond trade-offs is customers with access to basic services at affordable prices, uh, at scale, in emerging markets all around the world. That's right. Thank you, Sandeep. Pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank Great. you. That's going to do it for this episode in Returns on Investment Special Series, Beyond Trade-Offs. Find more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. We'll continue the conversation on the Beyond Trade-Offs channel on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with the Midiar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you in some sense of the word next time.